Good morning, Waypoint family. (laughs) Hear the word of God from Paul's letter to the church in Colossians. Now rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servants by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which in Christ in you, uh, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Waypoint. How are y'all doing this morning? One of you is doing well. Good. I'm glad. Glad to hear that everybody of all of us, uh, we can let Lawrence be our representative for us this morning. Um, my name is Eric Weiner. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here. And just this week, I, I have rediscovered that apparently I'm allergic to being outside. Uh, I, I don't know how all, all of you are handling the excess pollen in the air, but it wages war against my mortal body. And it makes it hard to breathe, to sleep, to think straight. I'm ready for this yellow haze to fade, right? I, don't, I mean, it's just, it's an apocalypse that's, that's upon us. But this week, I, I've, as I've been studying this passage in Colossians and preparing to preach this same gospel that did not deter Paul even from imprisonment and chains, he rejoiced in what God was doing through his chains to make the gospel known to the ends of the earth. And when I say make the gospel known, I don't, I don't mean just that he hoped that people would hear about it. Making the gospel known means that you are changed and you continue to be changed by it. And so Paul, Paul got prison. I'll deal with the pollen for now. I know that's not really a fair comparison, but, but truly my desire is that you come to know this gospel in the way that Paul champions it here. That you continue to grow up in the wisdom and knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ in your life. That he is your life. So as we continue in this letter to the church at Colossae, we arrive at the most personal part of the letter. Paul speaks of his joy in suffering so that the gospel would continue to go forth. Now as we talk about Paul's ministry, I want us to consider for a moment our ministry, you, 
me, us, the church, we have a ministry, we have a purpose, we have a mission. And what's at the heart of that mission? What's at the heart of that purpose? Is it not to learn to embody the values of God's kingdom as we proclaim the gospel among us? We are gospel people. And so I want you to consider our ministry as as a local body, as as a church here. We exist as a church to advance the kingdom of God by making disciples of every tribe, tongue, and nation for the glory of God and the sake of the gospel. That's why we're here. This is what we're doing. This is what we're about. And I bring this up because I think, I think Paul would say that our desire is very much in partnership with his own mission and calling. What God has commissioned Paul to do is unique, right? He's an apostle. He's doing what he's doing. He has authority over the church. But it's important for us to understand because our participation in our church's mission is part of the ongoing realization of what Paul was setting out to do in the first place. Now keep this in mind. Keep this in mind, church. If Paul's ministry is effective, it will magnify Christ in you. What this means is that every faithful gospel witness, that's you, that's all of us, every faithful gospel ministry effectively has someone else as its central focus. And it's not you. And it's not me. It's Christ. He should be increasingly more important in your life. You should be growing up in Him as He rules in you. Now, in in one sense, the gospel is, is like a jewel. You've probably heard this before. A precious treasure, multifaceted, And I want us to treat this passage like that this morning, like a multifaceted jewel for us to marvel at from from different angles. First, we'll look at the preciousness of the gospel. And here I want us to consider why Paul would say that he rejoices in what he suffers for the sake of the church. Second, the central point of the gospel, the central point of Paul's message, and this, of course, refers to the mystery of what Paul is saying, now revealed in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And third, the practice of the gospel. And this is the intended goal of Paul's apostolic ministry, what he hoped would be worked out in us, in the church. Now, our short short passage has more for us to grapple with in this, but we're going to camp out in these places. And so first, let's consider the preciousness of the gospel. The preciousness of the gospel. And as we said, Paul was imprisoned. And those such circumstances could have discouraged him. And maybe they did. Maybe maybe Paul got discouraged at times. It's not outside of the realm of possibility. But he just as well made his imprisonment an office by which his gospel ministry would continue. It didn't stop him. Now the opening to this passage is a tricky one. It's it's confusing. I've I've literally been thinking about this for weeks. Let let me read it again to you just just so that you're catching on. I want you to see what I mean here. In verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, which is the church. Now let's, let's just pause on the rejoice and suffering part for a second here. I mean, that's, that's interesting enough. But, but Paul, what, what do you mean? What, what does it mean for you to fill up what is lacking 
in regard to Christ's afflictions. What's that about? What, what is lacking in, in Christ's afflictions? We can say with certainty what Paul does not mean, right? Paul cannot mean that Christ's suffering at the cross was in some way lacking in accomplishing our salvation, right? I mean, in, in verse 20 of this same letter, he says, through Christ, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Christ has suffered once for all. But Paul suffers for the sake of the church so that this message now revealed in Christ might be proclaimed, making the church mature and whole. The goal of completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions means to participate in the ongoing proclamation of the gospel so that the work of Christ might be applied in all of its fullness in the church and in the world. What Paul was called to do, and what I believe the church is now called to do, is to leverage our lives for the sake of the gospel going forth so that the message of salvation might have its full effect. So that's what I think Paul is saying. Now again, Paul Paul says, now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. And so I want to make a, a few quick observations here about Paul's suffering in ministry. Paul's suffering in ministry. And the first, the first point I want to make here is suffering is one way that Paul identifies with Christ. It's one of the ways that he's identifying with Jesus. Paul, Paul's suffering is couched in language of identification. And I believe this is what gives him strength. As Christ identifies as the suffering servant we hear about in Isaiah 53, so Paul is applying similar language to himself. He says not only that he suffers, but also that he participates in these afflictions as one who is a servant commissioned by God. As a parent feels bound to the duties of raising their child, Paul feels bound to the duties of gospel stewardship for the sake of raising the church. Christ suffered for your salvation. Paul suffers so that the church might be bolstered in faith that comes through knowing Christ crucified and Christ risen. You see, Paul is trying to model for you what the mystery of Christ is intended to work out in us. I mean, this is what he's talking about in Corinthians 4 when he says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And so Paul's connecting his sufferings to Christ as part of the ongoing work of his ministry so that Christ might be made known in all of its riches and fullness. This is what, this is what it means for, for Paul to suffer on behalf of the church. Now second, Paul, Paul does not suffer for the sake of suffering. This is our second point here. Paul does not suffer for the sake of suffering. Suffering is for glory, not for glamour. Right? I, I've had someone ask me before, I, I'm not currently experiencing suffering in my life. And Christians should expect suffering. So does that mean I'm not honoring Christ with my life? In other words, should I do things to experience suffering? 
And while Paul does speak positively here about the nature of his suffering, he's not suffering for suffering's sake. He wants the church to know him in his sufferings for their sake. But this isn't some demonstration of his superior spiritual status. I mean, that would be antithetical to what Paul is trying to say. His desire is that through his suffering, they might be admonished and taught with all wisdom so that they may present everyone fully mature in Christ. And so Paul's message is not, if you're not suffering for Christ's name, then you're not really living for Christ's sake. His message is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You have been reconciled. You have been brought in. You belong to God. Paul wasn't hunting out ways to suffer. Paul was eager to be faithful to God's call for his life, and suffering did not deter him. The cost of following Jesus was not always ideal by worldly standards. But Paul considered the worth of his suffering. He considered what it would produce, and he counted it as joy. Now what we are asked to consider here is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus in our own lives and the call to follow him for the sake of the gospel. It's not the conditions of Paul's suffering that demonstrate the preciousness of gospel ministry. Being gripped by hope, we cling to Jesus because we're convinced by what he's producing in us and others through the gospel. What is being produced through Paul's suffering is a church that has been so yoked with Christ, so bolstered in faith that they are able to stand mature, that they would remain in Christ that they would not waver when trials come their way, that they can weather the storms of false teaching and burn the dross of worldly pleasures because they have grown up in the knowledge of Christ the Lord. A third thing I want to say about Paul's suffering here in his ministry, the supremacy of Christ is not at odds with suffering. The supremacy of Christ is not at odds with with suffering. Paul intentionally establishes the supremacy of Christ prior to talking about his sufferings. In fact, the rule of Christ is the backdrop of Paul's present trials. Now we are prone to look at the chaos of our world and we question what what God is doing. Is he even involved? Does he care? And this is why Paul doesn't want you to go hunting for trials. He's concerned with bolstering the faith of the church and the supremacy of Christ because he wants us to be strengthened for when trials do find us. You see, Paul rejoices at his present sufferings because he's confident in what God is able to do through the power of the gospel. In verse 25, Paul says that the Lord had commissioned him to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Knowledge about the supremacy of Christ reigning in you is foundational in times of trial. Spiritual crises are worsened by the absence of such knowledge. Absence of the knowledge and wisdom of Jesus will eventually shipwreck your faith. But with Christ, you can weather any storm. In Christ, Trials will even strengthen your faith. Now, I believe what we are called to consider here 
is how are we to leverage our lives for the sake of the gospel? And I'm not necessarily talking about going somewhere far away, though God may call you to do that. I'm talking about letting the truth about you in Christ transform your entire person. And so you trust God with your life. You trust God with your life. For Paul, the gospel was precious. It's everything. And God has tasked every member of his body to be about the ongoing ministry of the gospel in our lives and in the lives of others. And we're going to continue to talk about what does that mean? What does it mean for the gospel to, to take shape in our lives? Our second point this morning, the second, the second facet of this that we want to consider, the central point of the gospel, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is central to what Paul is saying. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This involves you. Christ is taking up residency in you. Do you guys remember the, the octocopter? I'm getting blanks. To, uh, no? Nobody knows what, no, I'm surprised here. No, you don't know, I, I didn't either, right? So, so I was listening, I was listening, this is, yeah. I was listening to a podcast that reminded me of this the other day. Nearly, nearly 10 years ago, Jeff Bezos, right, Amazon, Jeff Bezos, he was being interviewed by 60 Minutes when he took Charlie Rose behind the scenes to introduce to him the octocopter. It's supposed to be this big reveal. He's showing this video, showing this is how it's going to work. And I remember my friends raving about this at the time. They were, they were all talking about it. I was like, I, don't, I didn't know all my friends watched 60 Minutes, but they're talking about the, what, what Jeff Bezos is doing. Essentially, Amazon had been working on this technology where drones would be able to deliver your packages within 30 minutes of purchase. Now you know what I'm talking about. You all wanted this, right? You're, a little, you're like, you guys see drones flying around all over the place? No? No? Me either. Uh, so one day, drones would become ubiquitous, right? They'd be everywhere. And don't tell me that that, that wouldn't change your life. I mean, some of, you, some of you are like, man, if I could get my package within 30 minutes, I don't, I'd have to freeze my bank account or something. I don't know what I would do. But the, the, the fact that they are trying to create that service, that tells us something profound about our instant gratification desires, right? They, they know what we want. They know how to get us. This great reveal. This is what they're working on. But did you know, did you know that God has been at work? God's been working on something. He's been working behind the scenes. God has been up to something. You think drones sound nice? But what God has done is the greatest innovation in human history. What he's been concerned about, he's not concerned about feeding your desires. He's, he's concerned about giving you new desires. He's talking about making you new. That's God's project. And he's been telling his people what was coming for centuries. Paul says here in verses 25 and 26 that he was commissioned by God to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. This is the greatest reveal in human history. It was so precious that Paul was literally willing to be imprisoned for it because he knew that even though he could be chained, this message could not. Once the Lord revealed it, it would be out there in the world. And there would be nothing, there would be no one that could contain it. 
When God spoke grand promises to Abraham and Sarah all those years ago, when he talked about future blessings with Moses, when Rahab was spared because of her faith in what the God of Israel would do, when he promised David a king was coming whose reign would never end, this is what they were waiting for. This is what God had in mind as he was revealing himself to them all those years ago. Paul is saying there's nothing more precious than this in all the world. And God intended that you, that you right here, right now, would come to know this mystery now revealed. They've been waiting for it. Don't you want to know what God has been doing? I'll tell you. It's right there in verse 27. Christ in you. The hope of glory. You're like, what? Listen to that. Let that sink in for a second. Don't overthink this. Don't walk past it. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Of glory. Paul has established for the Colossian church that Christ is supreme over all. And if Christ is supreme over all, then that means he is supreme over you. Do you follow that logic? And he has a life of purpose and promise he is calling you to. You see, God wants you to make the gospel a matter of first priority in your life. That means we need to learn what it means. Christ in me, the hope of glory. And so I just want you to ask yourself this. If if Jesus is Lord, right? If Jesus is Lord, do I actually invite him to give direction for my life? Does he have say? Is he leading me? Or am I muting him? Whatever Jesus is not allowed to touch are the places in your life where you've effectively rejected his lordship. Right? Is that fair to say? Is he lord or he's not? In verse 28, Paul says, Christ is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Preaching and teaching the gospel is meant to promote a depth of understanding, of greater trust, a spiritual cleansing and healing. Paul is saying that through the proclamation of the gospel, we learn to put to death the old sinful patterns as we learn to live under the righteousness of Jesus. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This was central to Paul's message. And so we must learn to make it central to our lives. The reason why this matters is because there's not much in our lived experiences that would support the the reality that Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. I mean, when you get up in the morning, when when you go to work, when you interact with your coworkers, your patients, your clients, when you talk to your housemates, your classmates, your friends, your family, how often are you being reminded and invited to live in the reality that Jesus is Lord and that you rest under his rule right now. How often? What all is telling you that Jesus is supreme? 
I mean, we, we live in a world that is built on productivity. This fast-paced, efficiency-crazed world we live in is an affront to the gospel at every turn in our lives, telling us, I am what I earn. But through the gospel, Christ says, you are what he earned. Paul's aim is for you to discipline your life in the gospel, for it to become mature in you. We are called not to sit idly by, but to grow in the grace and the knowledge of this gospel, to let it have its full effect. And we do this as we come to understand the centrality of this mystery now revealed to us, that people have been waiting for generations to know in all of its glory, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is our reality, church. And that gets us to our third point this morning, the third facet of this jewel that we're looking at, the practice of the gospel, the practice of the gospel, the goal of Paul's ministry. This is how you grow in wisdom and knowledge. Paul writes to the church in Colossae, not because their faith faith has become shipwrecked. They are troubled by false teaching, but they haven't been infected by it. In fact, Paul says in Colossians 2.5 that he delights to see how disciplined they are and how firm their faith is in Christ. In other words, the church, they're doing well. Paul isn't concerned about the present moment. He's writing to them because he wants to see their faith bolstered. He's gearing them up for the long haul. So that's why Paul states his apostolic goal here, that they would be encouraged in heart, that they would be united in love, and so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Christ. I love his enthusiasm and labors because it's a reminder to us, not just for our church, but also, also for churches and for the church at large. I mean, we talk often about wanting to love and reach the triangle and the nations for the gospel. And it's important that you understand this, right? No one local church will do this on its own. You know that, right? We're, we're talking about participating in a, in a huge goal. We want the gospel to go forth to everywhere. We need lots of people involved. We need the whole body of Christ involved. We need lots of healthy churches. And so what that means, too, is that if if we are unhealthy as a body, man, that breaks my heart. And it should break your heart. But it should also break the hearts of churches around the triangle. And when there are other struggling churches in our community, man, that breaks my heart. Because we need more spirit-empowered gospel ministry to go forth unhindered. Healthy churches bolstered in faith by the good news of the gospel revealed in Christ. That's part of the mission. We want the gospel to go deep and wide. We want it to go near and far. Now, when Paul talks about being encouraged in heart and united in love, to, to me that sounds like something you might find it on some decor in Hobby Lobby. Right? Now, I don't have any problem if you want to buy that and put it in your house. It's great. But when Paul is saying to be encouraged in heart, you must understand that the heart was understood to be the center of the whole person. Put this in language that maybe you can understand. It's the central operating system. Right? Some of you tech people, are you catching with me? The, the world knows how to feed the desires 
of your central operating system. But in Christ, God makes you new. He gives you a new heart that rewires your desires to the Lord and his purposes. To be encouraged in heart means that your very person is changed in such a way that you begin to love God and others like Jesus loved God and others. Don't you want to love God and others like Jesus loved God and others? Christ in you, the hope of glory. You can. United in love. Love is both the posture and the context by which unity in Christ is realized. As F.F. Bruce says, Paul emphasizes that the revelation of God cannot be properly known apart from the cultivation of brotherly love within the Christian community. I'll say that again. Can we put that on the screen? Paul emphasizes that the revelation of God cannot be properly known apart from the cultivation of brotherly love within the Christian community. This means that your understanding of this mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory, does not have its full effect by mere knowledge acquisition. You come to understand these mysteries by walking in Christ. People come to know Christ more by encountering Christ more through you. Do you get how this works? I mean, generally speaking, what what you learn in in the classroom is different from what you learn on the job or in the field. I mean, I I studied counseling while I was in seminary, and I I could read books, and I could could study cases, giving examples about how to approach counseling from different angles and different topics. But for example, studying the topic of grief and encountering someone acquainted with grief, those are not the same thing. By encountering the person acquainted with grief, I met grief myself. I learned its voice. I began to pick up on its habits. That's what somebody walking in grief is like. When grief walks in the room, you know it. So you see, Christ, Christ is not just a subject for you to learn. He must become the very content of your life. Paul is saying to grow in the knowledge and wisdom of Christ. You do so not just by knowing, but by being, by living these realities out. This is one of the reasons why I would say the Sunday gathering is important. This is why I think community groups are important, why serving and doing outreach is important. These are all things that are inviting you to remember, to receive, to respond, and to relate to others in light of the gospel at work in you. These are contexts where Christ is coming alive in and through you. These things are intended to be a part of your growing in maturity, of your becoming more like Jesus. But genuine participation is vital to formation. Genuine participation is vital to formation. Again, when I I was in seminary, I used to work at a local restaurant. And one of my favorite parts of the job was training people because in training people, you you have the opportunity to mold them into the kind of employee you want working with you. You get to to both model and demonstrate what you're looking for. They can see it. They can interact with it. They can ask questions. You can dialogue. 
But you know what the main problem with training is? Some people don't want to be trained. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, you could be really good at training and somebody is just not having it, right? I mean, they were present. You show up. Showing up's half the battle. That's great. But you can tell when someone wants it and when they don't. And in Christ, you can both want it and receive it. Paul is saying for us to grow up in maturity, we need to learn to cultivate love in Christian community. It's not just about what you know. It's about how what you know shapes how you live and who you're becoming. To love another like this is to experience Christ in the flesh. I mean, this is the fruit of gospel ministry. This is living, breathing Christianity. When we actually live like this, people are, are able to, to take what they know about Christ and they interact with it in a, in a real way. They're able to say, oh, that's, that's what Christ-like love looks like. That's what Christ-like love feels like. Oh, that's, that's how you put sin to death. That's how you continue to work through this. That's how you endure. That's how you persevere. They grow in a knowledge and wisdom. And, and while the Spirit is working through them, the Spirit is also working through you to help you grow in understanding that you might live in, this, in a manner that pleases the Lord. This is what the gospel does. It's not static, it's dynamic. And it's at work in you. Christ is in you. And you don't attain Christ in you, but you trust that it's being produced in you because Christ promised it and because the Spirit guarantees it as he takes up residency in you. No intellectual process will lead to a full grasp of the mystery of Christ unless it's accompanied by a love for him and for Christians that knits us together in love. In other words, we cannot pursue knowledge of God in willful, unloving isolation, rejecting fellowship with others. And hear this. It becomes much easier to embrace false teaching when you're not knit together in love and growing in the knowledge and wisdom offered to you by being in Christ. It's much easier to embrace false teaching when you're not knit together in love. And so I ask you, church, how will you continue to grow in the knowledge and wisdom of Christ? How are you measuring your maturity in Jesus? How can you leverage your life for the sake of this gospel? How will you grow in your devotion to Christ in every spiritual way? We haven't finished becoming mature until we become whole. And we become whole not just by maturing individually, but also as we grow up together in Christ-like love. You need both. The gospel is precious. And I pray it becomes more precious to you. The gospel is the revelation of Christ in you, the hope of glory. The gospel works out Christ in you. What a marvelous reality. The gospel is not only what we proclaim to an unbelieving world, it's also the values and realities that must permeate our entire Christian experience. And so as we turn to the Lord's table this morning, May we be reminded of these gospel realities that we share in together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is my deepest desire 
that the people here this morning, our church, would take in these words, would take in, not my words, but your, your, your words, God, your gospel. Your gospel is so powerful. It has changed us and it continues to change us. I pray that it would continue to be lived out mightily in and through us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. God, we have a bright future because of what your son Jesus has secured for us. And we are, we are vessels that continue to carry this message on. The light of the world through us because of you, God. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.